Okay, perhaps we'll start. <clears throat> I'm not sure how this is going to go this evening. <laughs> I always remember once uh, at a live concert I was at hearing Neil Young, uh, the singer, introducing a song, and he said this. He said, this song kind of starts off real slow and just sort of fizzles out. <laughs> <laughs> I have a feeling that this talk might go in a similar direction. <laughs> okay, well, what I'm, what I'm attempting to do this evening um, is pick up on some of the themes um, that Chris laid last night and take them in, uh, in, a, in a slightly different direction, hopefully ending up in the sphere of kindness and compassion. So that's the sort of trajectory. Whether we get there is another matter <laughs> over the course of this talk. Um, I want to start off um, with, a, with a quotation, uh, which is a quotation, well, I, I won't tell you who it's by yet. It's, uh, the quotation says this, The fact is that I think I am a verb instead of a personal pronoun. A verb is anything that signifies to be to do, to suffer, to make. I signify all three. And that was written by uh, Ulysses S. Grant, who was a Republican president in the 1870s in America. Just my, my, how the literacy of Republican presidents has gone down. <laughs> <laughs> That's what one can say. However, I didn't choose it for that reason. <laughs> I think it sums up very, very nicely the movement of what, in a sense, Chris was putting in slightly different ways last night. And I'm not going to really be, in many senses, I'm not going to be saying anything new. I'm going to be reiterating what he said and coming at it from a slightly different angle. Because what we're saying is that we're verbs, not things. Yeah. We are verbs, we're processes, we're not ends, we're not static. Yeah. I hope that sounds liberating. I mean, this is a very practical teaching. You know? When we begin to reflect in this way that actually we are processes and not things, I personally find it a very liberating experience. You know, if, we, if we're a thing, if we're a self in that fixed way... Um, that Chris explored with you a little bit last night, if we were that kind of fixed self, then I would actually say, go home. You know, there's not a lot you can do about it. You know, there's, there's a sort of tinkering around on the peripheries and who and what you are, but actually, fundamentally, you can't really change that inner core if you are a fixed self. The self in this teaching... And I think actually in a lot of contemporary thought, not just in this ancient teaching of two and a half thousand years ago, but in a lot of contemporary scientific thought and a lot of contemporary philosophical thought, the self is, is, is far from being unitary and conceived of as being unitary, you know, singular, without change. It's more accurately seen as a series of impermanent selves that arise and pass away. Yeah. This is what you are on a day-to-day -ba -day basis, a series of selves rather than the self or a self. 
in that unitary sense. Selves arise in relation to the situations that we find ourselves in and alter the situation into sometimes radical situations and you find you have a whole other self. Put yourself in a crisis situation, earthquake, flood, tempest, imprisonment, torture, you might find yourself with a very different self than the self who you think you are. That's how different we can be. The writer Catherine Mansfield, some of you might know, she's a short story writer, um, New Zealand, a friend of Virginia Woolf, once said, every time I look inside myself, um, particularly when I'm perplexed by this phrase, be true to yourself, she said, when I look inside myself, I find myself as a concierge with a hotel of 100 guests. And actually, that's often the reality of the situation. So rather than this unitary sense, this indivisible sense of self, we have these selves arising, each of which appears and interacts with its environment, with our situation, with our context, according to the circumstances which have arisen in your life. Selves are fleeting and they're passing and they're rising in these contextual bases. Out of that self comes interpretation, comes narrative. And particularly narratives provoked with our awareness of others. In fact, another way of looking at this self, perhaps another thought around it, that the Buddha seems to have, although he doesn't state it in quite this way, is that our whole notion of self is often dependent on others. It's often very, very dependent on others. It doesn't live in isolation from others. And when I say our sense of self, well, of course, ourselves are arising and passing away and arising and passing away, just like those thoughts that are so evanescent that, that we see when we sit on the cushion. When we sit on the cushion, when we go through our day, even on retreat, we have many, many, multiple selves. We have multiple personalities. And the poet Rilke, I think, really recognized this. I don't know if any of you know Rilke's work, but he wrote a sort of semi-poetic novel, which was called The Notebooks. And in that, he reflects on faces, which is the persona, the way that we see it. Just like the Greeks had the idea of persona, of slipping on masks and taking on masks. This is actually how Greek tragedy and Greek comedy was performed, with masks. You never saw the face. You only saw these fleeting masks that were put on and taken away. Which are actually, if you've ever seen Greek tragedy performed that way, it's very powerful. rather than just in our sort of naturalistic way. But Rilke here is reflecting on faces. He says, I'm learning to see, I'm beginning. It's going badly, but I intend to make the most of my time. For example, it never occurred to me before how many faces there are. There are multitudes of people, but there are many, many more faces. Because each person has several of them. There are people who wear the same face for years. Naturally, it wears out, gets dirty, splits at the seams, stretches like gloves worn during a long journey. 
They are thrifty, uncomplicated people. They never change it, never even have it cleaned. It's good enough, they say, and who can convince them of the contrary? Of course, since they have several faces, you might wonder what they do with the other ones. They keep them in storage. Their children go out wearing them. And sometimes it also happens that their dogs go out wearing them. <laughs> and why not? A face is a face. Other people change faces incredibly fast. Put on one after another and wear them out. At first they think they have an un unlimited supply of faces. But when they are about 40 years old, they come to their last one. There is, to be sure, something tragic about this. They are not accustomed to taking care of faces. Their last one is worn through in a week, has holes in it, is in many places as thin as paper. And then little by little, the lining shows through the non-face, and they walk around with that on. <laughs> very powerful, isn't it, if you think about it? I mean, despite the humour of it, it's very, very powerful. You know, he, go he goes on and says, what is it to see somebody faceless without that persona? Without that persona. You know, so we're slipping on these masks day after day. You know, these are our masks. These are the faces that we present to the world. This is the persona that we present to the world. Rather than personality, is changing personas that we adopt in the course of our day. So we become what the situation often demands of us. Yeah? Our voices even change. Have you noticed this in, in conversation with different people? Yeah? Have you noticed that one? Yeah. Our body language changes with certain people. We lean in, we lean away, we turn our heads, you know. We have our, you know, we adopt, in other words, these different personas for different people and the context. And what we call the I, the first person pronoun, is the result of and not the source or originator of consciousness. Yeah. It's not... And in fact, this is the opposite way around, and this is the way particularly the Buddha is talking about this, that the I is being generated by conscious experience. Yeah? It's not the originator of consciousness. Yeah? It is only while reflecting on experience that any conscious sense of I, of self, emerges when we begin to reflect on our experience. We see that. We see that particularly in powerful moments of experience, such as aversion and desire. Have you noticed how the self is very strong in those moments? Yeah. In many ways, you could say, if you were looking something from when you most feel a self, yeah, in a more concrete sense, it's often in those very powerful moments of desire, wanting something and not wanting something. This is often when we really experience it. You know, this is something, in a way, to take away and see if you can see in your day-to-day -day life. A lot of the time, our self, that self of the I, is really in the background. And I'm using self as a sort of shorthand for selves. It's really in the background of our experience. You notice how it doesn't intrude sometimes a lot into experience of day-to-day -day things. Yeah. Only when asked to reflect on what we're doing does that self arise. Yeah. Only when we're actually asked about, you know, what are you doing? 
Yeah. Then you go, I am, and it comes up. Yeah. The I is an impermanent construct, and we're producing new eyes continuously. Yeah. We're producing them all the time. Yeah. And again, situationally, yeah, in our relations with others, we're producing these eyes continuously. However, and I think, you know, there's so many of you who are psychologists and out, out there and know far more about this stuff than I do, but in these reflections, what we could say is that I is a necessary but impermanent construct. Yeah? Now, going back to something that Chris said last night, self, no self, or self, not self. Yeah? Huge difference in that one consonant, isn't there? between self and no self. One is that first question, is there a self or isn't there a self? We're into the realm of philosophy and ontology here. Yeah. We're trying to establish whether something exists or doesn't exist. It's a perennial way we have of thinking in the West. It was there in Aristotelian logic. It's called the law of excluded middle. Yeah. That something exists or it doesn't exist, and you say if it both exists and doesn't exist, it's a contradiction. Yeah? Yeah. So actually, Western logical forms and Western ways of thinking actually exclude the possibility in many ways of what the Buddha is trying to do, which is getting to us to think about how, and to quote Chris last night, how it works. Yeah. How this Entity or non-entity that we feel so strongly in most of our experience, yet we can't pin it down, can we? How, it, how it's actually operating in our life and what it's doing in our life. The way it is making us see the world, the making, way it is making us, in a sense, and I'm using very loose language here, obviously, because I'm trying to get you to understand this, the way that we relate to this. Yeah. So rather than see this as this arisal of multiple selves, all impermanent, arising and passing away in conditions, we pin it down and we call ourselves I. Yeah. This is, <laughs> if you want to perform a reductionism on yourself, you've just done it by calling yourself I. Yeah. By actually, in a sense, pinning yourself down to being a something. Right? Rather than something which is much more open. Emily Dickinson, some of you might know this poem. It's actually one of her, one of her, po one of her short poems. She says this I'm nobody. Who are you? Are you nobody too? There, there's a pair of us. Don't tell. They'd advertise, you know. How dreary to be somebody. Yeah. How public, like a frog. Don't know if you know, but frogs go public when they want to mate. <laughs> yeah. To tell one's name, the whole of June, to an admiring bog. Pinning yourself down to being something or somebody. Yeah. 
Yet you're not no thing too. This is the, yeah, in not being a self, you're not nothing either. It's not that spectre of nihilism that Chris held out last night. Yeah. It's not that spectre of nihilism. Now, I've so far spoken about this in, I hope not too abstract ways, but it's probably more abstract than the actual practice of this. Because this is the practice of not-self. Yeah. Practicing that not-self, that open spaciousness that I think Chris was indicating last night in his talk. That spaciousness. Notice in being a self, being tied to that idea of unitariness and fixity, and that is constriction. It's like being constricted. The Buddha, in a very telling simile, is when we relate to ourselves in this way, he says it's a bit like a dog being tied to a post, and all it can do is run and round and round the post. Yeah. Isn't that sometimes the way it feels? We run round and round ourselves, yeah. trying to break free of the post. It actually works really well in English. It doesn't do it in other languages. Of that I. You know, when you're writing I in English, it's very unitary, isn't it? Solitary. Stands on its own. Imagine that hammered into the ground and you chained to it, yeah. running round and round it. That's the kind of I that the Buddha is saying we need to break free of. But not to dismiss or get rid of the self. I think we'll become completely dysfunctional. You know, there's all those things, again, I think Chris was relating to what something that Christina had said, you know, we have to be a self in a functional way. Yeah? And selves that operate in particular areas of our lives, you know? There's the parent self, there's the work self, there's the home self, there's the leisure self. There's the excited self, and every emotion has a self, which arises in certain circumstances. Yeah? So we've certainly got multiple personalities here. <laughs> Hopefully functional, though, rather than dysfunctional. Yeah? And they're operating all the time. And what the Buddha is really trying to get us to see in this teaching, and I think what a lot of contemporary thought is getting us to see in slightly different ways and slightly different ways of reflecting on this, is that we cannot pin ourselves down to this one fixed notion of a self. And actually when we begin to see that, it opens up all sorts of possibilities for us. Yeah when we begin to see that. Also, in interrelation, you know, I said the self is very much also arising, or these selves are very much arising in our relations with others. Yeah? In a way, there is always some degree of tension and conflict with others because they are not us. Yeah? And how do we resolve that? Think about some of the interpersonal conflicts we have, just the ordinary day-to-day -day interpersonal conflicts, just the, the quarrels sometimes you might have with your partners, yeah. your spouses, your partners, your friends. If I'm being quite sort of basic about this, sometimes those quarrels will boil down to that they're not us. <laughs> yeah. 
They are not me. So, I think there's something really key here, isn't there? Because if what we're trying to do in our interrelationships is reduce the other to me, we're creating sameness throughout. We're not learning, in a sense, to deal with the conflict of difference. And there is always conflict with difference and tension with difference. This is the interpersonal world. It's the world of social relationships. It's the world of political relations. We can take it out into the bigger sense of the political, not just the political in terms of politics, but the political in terms of the social structure that we live in. Now, how do we hold those tensions within that? Without abuse, but also a seemingly more innocuous form of abuse, which is trying to reduce otherness and difference to the same in this. I think two and a half thousand years ago, the Buddha slightly recognized this. This is the growth of in his monastic communities of, of the discipline that held people together in respectful relationships. Yeah. Some of these rules of which, you know, in one tradition, um, there's 227 of them. Yeah. Just a few. I mean, you know, when you came in on the first night, we gave you five precepts. They have two, 227 rules to live by. But most of them are actually just rules of community how not to get on another's nerves, etiquette, politeness, things that ease social passage in a respectful way between others. These are important, aren't they, in our societies, in, in our ability and sometimes inability to hold when we don't actually in a sense, work with morals and ethics to be able to hold communities together. And then they start to fall apart in in disagreement and tension. And we see this very, very much echoed in interpersonal relationships. That it's so difficult, isn't it, being an I and wanting the other to be you. I'll just let that sink in because it's a really important statement. Just wanting the other to be you. I'll give you an example out of a piece of literature. Again, because I think these are very telling sometimes, these extracts we find in literature. This is out of a novel by Virginia Woolf where a male person is talking to one of the female characters in the novel. And I'll just kind of go into it full stream and you'll pick it up, I'm sure, here. It says. Here's her thoughts. This is stream of consciousness stuff. This boy, of course, though she only half listened, slightly sneered at him. She asked herself, my people, he was saying hunted. Her attention wandered. She had heard it all before. I, I, I. He went on. It was like a vulture's beak pecking or a vacuum cleaner sucking. 
or a telephone bell ringing. I, I, I. But he couldn't help it. Not with that egotist face, she thought. Glancing at him, he could not free himself, could not detach himself. He was bound, I think it's a lovely phrase, he was bound on the wheel of the eye with tight iron hoops. Yeah. He had to expose, he had to exhibit. But why let him, she thought, as he went on talking, for what do I care about his eye, eye, eye? Or his poetry, for that matter. Let me shake him off then, she said to herself, feeling like a person whose blood had been sucked. Leaving all the nerve centres pale, she paused. He noted her lack of sympathy. He thought her stupid, she supposed. I'm tired, she apologised. I've been up all night, she explained. I'm a doctor. The fire went out of his face when she said, I. That's done it. Now he'll go, she thought. He can't be a you. He has to be an I. She smiled, for up he got and off he went. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know about you, but I certainly see that in certain social situations. Uh, you know, have you had those situations? Yeah? I think these are things that we can all relate to. This is why I think they're so powerful. I mean, interestingly, in that particular uh, extract, of course, there's a gender difference. You know, it's really showing up, you know, particularly as this was written in the 1930s. This would have been even more prolific, you know, this sort of gender sense of the dominant male and the submissive female. Yeah. So, where have we got so far? Multiple eyes, the pain of the eye, the difficulty of keeping it together. Yeah. Yeah. But what are we trying to keep together? What are we trying to find? Again, using Christopher's, you know, I'm searching for myself. Yeah. Searching for my real self. I mean, I come from a generation that went off to India searching for their real selves. Yeah, you know, probably somewhere in an ashram lying there in the corner. <laughs> yeah. So we went looking for our real selves. Um, and as I was reflecting on something I was writing recently, I discovered I was just another miserable self in another miserable place rather than being miserable at home. <laughs> you know, that's the self I discovered. Yeah. It wasn't a real self. It was just another self in another context, exhibiting other dissatisfactions by attaching myself to some ideal that could not be gained, could not be grasped at. Yeah. So I hope you're hearing that we, we have a bit of a problem. Yeah. I mean, Chris detailed it out really well last night, and, and these are just reflections, in a sense, on what he's saying. But now with the added reflection, of course, that we're in the interpersonal world. Yeah. We're in the interpersonal world. Yeah. The world of others. Yeah. If you want a really good example of inauthentic communication between others, that extract, I think, is wonderful. Yeah. It's non-communication, isn't it? Yeah. There is no real sense of the meeting of an I and another, even in that looser sense of the I, of that more multiple sense of I. Yeah. 
there's no real coming together. There's no respectfulness. There's no sense of otherness being held in a way that is, I think, ultimately ethical. And of course, one of the things when we start to open up, what we're opening up to, in not getting rid of, because it's impossible, that would be dysfunctional. We're not getting rid of the self. We're understanding how it works. Understanding, and I hope you can see this in practice, how we fixate so readily. Yeah. There almost seems to be a, a longing, as I indicated, I think, in the first talk I gave, to want to turn ourselves into something substantial. We want to inhibit that process of being a verb that you know, Ulysses Grant talks about, you know, being that verb, by becoming a noun. Yeah? Be becoming a name. You know, they don't change that much, comparatively. They certainly change at slower rates. They don't go through the vast, rapid changes of faces that Rilke spoke about. Yeah. And the personas that we adopt all the time. Yeah. When we look at the things around us in the world, we see things don't change that much, comparatively, unless there's some kind of disaster. Yeah. They change at a much slower rate. We are, by our very natures, fleeting. And I don't mean that just in terms of that we're, in a way, beings towards death. But we are fleeting in the sense of not remaining the same. Yeah. And if we want to look into this in the field of human relations, there is a, there's a, a philosopher who used to work in French, although he was Lithuanian by birth, called Emmanuel Levinas, and says if we want to look into the fleeting, uncapturability of somebody, look into somebody's face. Yeah. Look into somebody's face. And what we see in that phenomenology of the face is something that's ungraspable. That that person that you're trying to capture constantly evades you. Yeah. And so instead of in a, in a sense, having a relationship with somebody we can identify and give them an identity, what we're doing is, in his words, instead of totalizing somebody, we stare into an infinity. The face of the other is an infinity, which always recedes capture, always recedes that ability to totalize it. In other words, give it an identity. Now, again, just referring to something in our probably our own experience, and I don't know whether this has happened to you, it certainly happened to me a lot, I think it's fairly general. And when somebody comes up to you and goes, you're that sort of person, aren't you? Has there anybody done that to you? Yeah. What, how do you feel when that happens? When, when somebody comes up to you and goes, well, you're that sort of person, aren't you? How do you feel? <laughs> I think that sums it up. <laughs> I mean, it does. You can feel really annoyed about it. Yet what they might be saying is partially true about you. But notice what is going on. And this, in a sense, is the unethical relationship. Is that attempt to encapture you to capture you in some particular way. Yeah. To actually 
hold you in some frame or you know, metaphorically snapshot of you, that this is who you are. A lot of relationships fail, actually, because there is that inability to see the change that the other is. Yeah. To see the change that you are. On an ethical sense in, uh, you know, in Buddhism, and not just early Buddhism, that any relationship really is the open negotiation of two changing entities. Yeah. And I use the word entity very loosely here, or two changing beings. Yeah. When there isn't the acceptance of change then often relationship fails because it's an attempt, again, to have captured somebody at some point in time. And you can hold that for a degree of time, can't you, for a, a period, and then it slips. Yeah. It's almost like, actually, here's the snapshot and here's the real person, and actually they don't look the same anymore. Yeah. That's how I describe it in a sort of metaphorical way. We have a snapshot of the person at a particular moment in time and actually now they have changed. It was very interesting many, many years ago when I was working at the University of Manchester, when I was teaching in the University of Manchester. And we used to draw a lot of our students, mature students in particular, and mature female students from the local area. Uh, at that time, I don't know if it's like that now, but this was quite a patriarchal society in this part of England. You know, it was quite patriarchal. And these people coming into higher education, as I say, majority of them were female, coming into higher education, I think the divorce rate was about 90% you know, in that because of the inability of men, in this case, to cope with change that often you know, they ex viewed and saw in their spouses through the result of coming into higher education. Yeah. Now, the reason I'm saying this is not to depress you. <laughs> we, I think we've all said this at some point in time. I'm, not, I'm actually not quite sure whether Christina said it. I know Chris said it last night. This is not meant to depress you. But it's meant to actually show us what happens when actually there is not what I really call ethical relationships. Yeah. An ethics founded on respect, an ethics founded on difference, an ethics founded on change, and an ethics founded on, this is where we started, on not-self. Yeah. Again, just going back to that image for a second, self is a constriction. Actually, this is the way the Buddha speaks of it. In one of the texts, he speaks of the self as being a constriction, a contraction, a spasm, he calls it, at one stage. You know, a spasm. We've spasmed, just like a muscle spasmed. We've contracted around that sense of identity of who we are. Yeah. Yet, it's ironic, isn't it? Because we do that to ourselves, yet when somebody else, as I suggested, you get angry when somebody else does it to us, yet we do it to ourselves. Yeah. And we can quite happily say, I'm that sort of person. <laughs> yet when somebody else says, you're that sort of person, two different reactions. Same phenomena, in a way. One spasming to ourselves and the other attempting to contract you into a particular mode. 
We can see this operating in daily life. Bear in mind, of course, I'm dealing with generalities here. You have to look at specific instances in life. And you will see some of these very much echoing this, and you'll see other instances as well. But as a generalization, I think it often works that you know, we create identities for ourselves but reject having identities forced on us. Yeah. So we're talking about the ethics of interrelationship. So this is a really practical issue. You know, how we live together you know, as different races, as different genders, different ages even. You know, how do we live together? You know, this is a big, big question. And it's the question, I think, that primarily, even in you know, two and a half thousand years ago, motivates the Buddha, motivates him into really inquiring. Because one of his motivations, I haven't got the quotation here with me, but one of his motivations is that he sees people quarreling all the time. He says he sees them flapping around like fish in shallow water. Yeah. Enmity, governing relationships. Yeah. I don't think much has changed in two and a half thousand years. I don't, you know, again, I'll leave it to you to decide. There is still so much enmity. There's so much division. If you look at the world now politically, yeah. if we look at it socially, there is so much enmity and division in our societies. Yeah. It's not just that we can pinpoint one country. This is going on in, you know, throughout Europe. It's going out through America. There's a huge amount of political and social enmity being bred in our societies you know, with the constant outbreaks of sporadically of things like violence you know, rejection of otherness of difference within those societies now in the buddha's time this was very much down to a, a very highly structured class ridden ultimately it becomes a caste ridden society in the Buddha's time, this wasn't the case. It was a, it was a higher, hierarchized class society out of which something that we know about contemporary India, the caste system grows. Yeah. But in ancient India, it wasn't like that. Yet, huge amount of social inequality with being people being looked down upon. Yeah. Being looked down upon as, you know, as the lower stratas of society from up high. Yeah. Ancient India, this is, that structured society. Actually, does it look that much different even in contemporary societies? Yeah. In the unethical, the unethical inequalities, and particularly the aggrandizement often goes with being an I in a higher strata of society. Yeah. And it might not be the kind of class that was spoken about. I won't go into it. But it might not be the class that was spoken about in ancient India, but we have not classless societies, do we? Because it, even if the old notion of class has often dropped out of our societies, it's still based on wealth. Yeah. And the inequalities of wealth within our, within our contemporary systems here. So, if you like, the the unethical dimension that the Buddha was trying to deal with in his own social systems is still here. It's still with us. Yeah. It's still with us. And it's worth reflecting on that, politically, economically, environmentally, 
you know, the damage that's often done through enmity, through aversion, through the inability to appreciate difference, you know, species difference, the difference of other races, whatever it may be, there is still that written into our societies. And I think we have to, in a way, begin to look at that, you know, because we might be doing this practice, but it's not an isolated practice from the rest of our society, is it? Yeah. I hope you can see that. Yeah. Because otherwise what we end up doing in, in the meditation halls is feeling very good and we walk out into a society which is ridden with you know, a lot of problems. Yeah. It's actually riven with problems throughout and I wouldn't exclude any of our contemporary societies from this. So in a way, when we begin to reflect on the self, the self and other, the other becomes, if you like, an, another body, the body politic that we dwell within. Yeah. Now, this is not obviously to say well, we all have to immediately go out and become social activists. This is not about it but it means that we see ourselves in relationship to others. So, we've talked about some of the unethical ways that we behave with others. The clashing of eyes. Yeah. The first-person pronouns. The inability to hold an other. Even sometimes a spouse. Somebody close to you, a friend, in that respectful gaze that I think the Buddha really speaks about. And seeing that other person as an infinity. I mean, I've thrown out quite a lot of things so far, so I hope some of these at least are dropping. Here. To see that other person as an infinity who I cannot capture, I cannot hold, cannot tie down in some way. This is the foundation. Actually, Levinas has a really another interesting point, which he says is the foundation of all ethics, which he says, when I look into the face of the other, that face, that vulnerable face says, don't hurt me. At its most basic, it says, don't hurt me. Yeah. I mean, that's, I don't know how that makes you feel, but for me, it really brings me up short and thinks, yes, actually, that's human vulnerability. That's what we see when we look at another, when we really look, when we open, when we clear ourselves enough and become spacious enough, not to get rid of and become a, a no-self, but not to identify, not to identify the self. Then we can become caring. We can move into a situation of caring for that other and that other's vulnerability. Being an I, being that sense of identity, is actually a place of power and manipulation. And I don't know if you recognize this, even sometimes in our own behaviors. You know, when I feel powerfully I, and I am in the right, you know, when we hold that viewpoint of self, you know, what is in, in Pali is called ditti, a viewpoint on something, a viewpoint on ourselves and a viewpoint on the other, then it's not open to negotiation. I am right in this. Yeah. What we're doing, when we break that down, we open into, when we clear 
if you like, and again using a metaphor, when we become more spacious, we clear a space for the other to manifest. Does that make sense? Does that gel at all? I can only see if I have enough space to see. The novelist Iris Murdoch talks about the great big fat ego that sits in front of us and obscures our view. (laughs) And I, I don't know about you, but I can sort of have an image of this sort of big blob sitting in front of me and you sort of go occasionally peer around the corner and you might get a glimpse of the other. But how, when that is sitting there obscuring your view, obfuscating your view, can you ever clearly see the other? So when we talk about this not-self, it has these huge ethical implications of becoming something cleared, clearer, to be able to see that other to be able to relate to them, to be relate, to relate to their vulnerability. And actually, in that clearing as well, we expose our own vulnerability. Yeah? And I hope this doesn't sound too idealistic, because I think this is a real possibility. Yeah? And this also implies, in becoming that cleared space, we begin to understand this process of identification, identity, identification, identity, identification. You know, out of those multiple selves in your day and in your context and your situations, which one is you? (laughs) Yeah, which one is you? You know, that old question, which one is the real you? Really difficult, isn't it? To pin down. In fact, we do ourselves a disservice if we try to pin them down. Just as we do a disservice to the other when we try to pin them down to you are that sort of person. It clears the space for the possibility as well of beginning to relate in that self-conscious way. And I don't mean that in a heavy sense of identification. In a self-conscious way to our own otherness. In creating an identity for ourselves, to use a sort of Jungian phrase that's often much overused sometimes, is we neglect the shadow. We create a persona, and then we cast aside and put in the margins of our processes that shadow, everything that we don't want to be. That I am not. Yet as we know, that shadow, or whatever you want to call it, those unconscious elements, or elements that we are unconscious of, if I'm putting it more in Buddhist terms, obtrudes into our life. It makes itself known. So there's always that otherness. There's always the things we don't want to be. I'm not, I don't want to be that sort of person. I don't want to be the sort of person who's angry times and irritable and you know, gets upset at little things, shouts at the children or their, you know, your partner or whatever it may. You don't want to be that. Actually, we make it even more difficult when we're mindfulness teachers. <laughs> yeah. Have you noticed that? I mean, it came up quite a lot, lot today, didn't it, even in the feedbacks, uh, you know, trying to get rid of that idea of being perfect you know, when you sit in front of your group. Yeah. But actually, we can only do that with the acceptance of our otherness. Yeah? 
And actually that acceptance of our otherness is the acceptance of our own vulnerability as well. Yeah. Now that, if we're coming back in a way back to something a little you know, main, more mainstream in, in Buddhist psychology, then this becomes the domain for friendliness. That acceptance of the difficult person who you are. Yeah. Yeah. We can so easily want to brush that under the carpet, the difficult person that we are. Yeah. And again, notice when I identify with an I and other, the other is the difficult person, not I. <laughs> yeah. So it's the acceptance of that otherness, that difficulty, those bits about yourself, just putting it in very crude terms, those bits about yourself you don't like, don't want to accept, don't want to see as yourself and being part of that process of not selfing. Yeah. But definitely arises. <laughs> yeah. Chart it for a week for yourself. Yeah. Find that irritable self. That angry self, that aversive self. You know, I don't know what, again, it's, it's just a useful exercise of seeing that that's there as well in there. And actually it's about looking with a kinder eye at that. Yeah. Only when we begin to acknowledge that dimension of ourselves in friendliness, this word metta, let me just clear the air about this word. This word get, often gets translated as loving kindness. This is an appalling translation. It's a really, really bad translation of the Pali metta or the Sanskrit maitri. Yeah. The word actually, the word for a friend is a mitta or a mitra. Yeah. And so this means to befriend yourself. Yeah to be kinder towards yourself. This is not to love everything about yourself, but to be kinder, to cast, if you like, again, a metaphor, but to cast a kinder eye on that difficult other who you are. And perhaps when we begin to learn to cast a kinder eye on that other who's popping up as a self every so often, most, you know, I think we're all going to see this, yeah, until so-called awakening occurs, yeah, that when we cast that kinder eye on that other who is ourself, perhaps it helps us to cast a kinder eye on the other who is the other who we find difficult in our lives. So friendliness becomes the ground base out of which Actually, what manifests in this you know, more Buddhistic understanding of it, what manifests, what is the direct growth of the seeds that we start to plant with kindness is something which in, in, in Sanskrit and Pali, it's exactly the same word, is karuna. Karuna. Karuna actually has a lovely etymology. It means sometimes to turn outwards and to see the other. To turn outwards and to see the other. It also means it comes from a root in these languages, and I don't want to get all linguistic on you, but it comes from a root which I think is really indicative of what it's meant to do. It's a, it's a root that means to do. 
So actually it's not about having an emotion, it's about doing something. And so these days I don't even translate this word which is with its usual thing, its usual translation of compassion, but of an outgoing kindness that's born of friendliness. Yeah. If you want to use the compassion word compassion, fine, but the compassion is arising as an activity, an action, out of this soil, this base of friendliness towards ourself and towards the other in equal basis. Remember Chris read out last night, caring for self is caring for other, caring for other is caring for self. This is the basis of it. This is the basis of these virtues, if you like, within Buddhist the Buddhist psychological framework. They have no meaning if it's not in a world of interrelationship. Yeah? They have real, no real ground except within a world of interrelationship, of a world being with others. Like it or not, let's face it, we're thrown into a world with others. <laughs> yeah? We find ourselves with those difficult things called other people. Yeah? And we have to deal with it as we, as we go through our day-to-day -day existence. Yeah? And the, the, the root of the ethical movement are these aspects of vulnerability and the display of kindness to that vulnerability and friendliness rather than aversion. So the moment we start to develop that meta quality, that quality of friendliness and kindness, we come face to face often with those aversive tendencies, don't we? We see them much clearer. Rather than being automatic, we begin to have a key into them and see where they're arising in our life. But when we begin to orient our way, cast our minds, begin to act in ways which are indicative of this, then we move into kinder relationships with both self and other, and the other within ourself. Yeah. And self, again, the multiple selves arising and passing away. Out of, out of these qualities is also, buoyant, uh, is also born, given birth to an appreciative joy. Yeah. Yeah, we've, we've talked a lot about the difficulties, and this is not to minimize them at all, but one of the other dimensions that's so, so important, and again, I think Chris touched on this a little bit, yeah, and Christina has also touched on this, is this joyfulness. Yeah. Not elation, not ecstatic states. The word, again, has a very interesting etymology. Um, it's, it's a word which is mudita. Mudita actually indicates something which is gentle. It's a gentle joyfulness, if you want to translate it directly. So in other words, in the background of our experience, almost as a sort of vibratory quality, there is a gentle joyfulness that permeates even difficulty. Yeah? Because it appreciates things. It appreciates others. And that's coming out of the kindness and the well, compassion, if you want to put it that way, or the, the sense of 
this outgoing activity of kindness that can be demonstrated. It's being born of that. Appreciating the other as the other. Appreciating an environment that you find yourself in. Appreciating that which is there in your life that gives you something that's joyful. might be another person. It might be looking at a beautiful scene. It might be listening to a piece of music, hearing a piece of poetry, reading something. So there's so much, isn't there, in our lives that we can appreciate that gets overlooked. It gets overlooked in our daily life and our lives are so much poorer for that overlooking. We can feel ourselves in poverty Yet, as the Tibetans often put it, we live in a jeweled palace. We live in a jeweled palace, and that palace is, if you like, our world. That's the world we live in. Yet, notice what happens when some of the things that have been spoken about arise, those difficulties in our life. We turn inwards, don't we? We turn inwards, we fixate and to use that lovely word, because I haven't really had a chance to use it the whole of this course, which is the word papancha. There you go, I said it. <laughs> we get into papancha. We obsess. We proliferate. We spread out. Our thinking becomes dominated in a way that we don't even know a conclusion to, because there, in a sense, there is no conclusion to papancha. It's just an endless stream of thought that will never find any resolution at all. And the equanimity which is spoken about, which again is one of these virtue qualities, just echoing what Chris was saying this morning, a word we hardly ever use in English, which I think in itself is very telling that we hardly ever use in English, probably means there's not a lot of it around. (laughs) Yeah. There's not a lot of equanimity that we see around us. Uh, but this is an equanimity that isn't a vacant, vacuous sense of just holding all things as being equal. It's, it's, it's much more of an engaged quality than a sort of standing back or moving out of and being able to look at things in a so-called dispassionate way. It's not the equanimity of somebody born or an equanimity born of somebody living in a cave. It's an equanimity that's born, A, out of those other three qualities, out of the friendliness, the kindness and compassion and the appreciative joyfulness, but is truly engaged with what is going on. It's an equanimity within life not an equanimity outside of life. And in many ways, although this is not the whole story, these four qualities that we're speaking about are the foundation of our ethical interrelationship with others and our ethical interrelationship with life because this quality of equanimity means not being swayed, not being thrown off balance, not being buffeted by whichever wind is blowing, whether it's a west wind or it's an east wind or a north wind or a south wind. 
you know, and these are spoken about very graphically, I won't go into them here, but very graphically is that which throws you, you know, fame and fortune, you know, and its opposite. You know, praise and blame, you know. Praised goes one way, blame throws you the other way. Yeah. And we all know that these oppositions you know, are being laid upon us often in our daily lives. And again, they become manifestations of, oh, it's me, it's I that is being praised, I that is being blamed, I that is being criticised. Yeah. And we fix ourselves, and can fix ourselves within those definitions. Yeah. So to finish off, this has gone on a little, little bit too long, so I hope I haven't tired you out. I haven't fizzled out anyway. That's <laughs> I might have tired you out, but I haven't fizzled out. I'm just getting going, by the way, <laughs> at this stage. Where have we got in this just brief overview? And it is a brief overview. You know, we've gone from the reflections of Chris last night about this notion of self. Yeah. Really beginning to see ourselves, what's actually, how, how do you work? Really be interested enough to see how you work. You know, to be, you know, don't take those claims that I've made at face value. You know, see if there's multiple selves in your day. You know, each self is a consciousness. Yeah. Each self arising in a different context, etc., etc. You know what I've talked about this evening. See how that affects your relations with others. Yeah. See how that being a self in any fixed way, when you start to identify with it, in any way, see how that affects your relation. That's a really practical task. That's not an abstract thing. See how it affects you. See how, in a state of anger, you're thrown back for example, or aversion, you're thrown back and think, mm. notice that contraction. You can actually feel it bodily sometimes. Yeah. Somebody affronts you, somebody's annoyed with you, and you go, mm, and get angry. You know, it's that contraction, that's that spasm that the Buddha speaks about. I, I, I am the one under attack, etc. You know, watch it in your daily life. That's just a very simple example of this. Then, see if we can see some degree of spaciousness in this beginning to hold ourselves as something much, much looser, something much more evanescent, something much more impermanent than anything we might identify as being that real, fixed, unchanging, substantial self that we often identify with. See it in every perceptual act there's a different self. I'm going to go even further. In every perceptual act, there's a different self of, you know, arising. Every perceptual act. There's a different intentionality, and I'm using that in that philosophical sense again, arising with each perceptual act. Yeah. And a different self that's relating to that. And out of that spaciousness, see if something like those four qualities can be born, those four ethical qualities that help us to hold our relations with others because these are interrelational. These are relational qualities. See if they can hold you and open you to that sense of living with what we ordinarily perceive as difficult others. I'll finish there.
thank you so much for your patience on a very long talk. <laughs> thank you. Let's just have a moment of silence before we... Do a little bit of walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.